As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What's up, Bear fans? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our friends at MyBookie. The NFL preseason kicks off on August 1st with the Hall of Fame game, and soon we'll have regular season NFL and college football to toil over. That means it's time to make an account at the best online sports book, no demand. That's right. I'm talking about MyBookie. With an easy, no-hassle mobile site, 24-7 customer service, and bets on every sport and prop imaginable, MyBookie provides a fun, safe betting experience. And if you deposit today, MyBookie will hook you up with a 50% deposit bonus. That's right. Put in 100, they'll give you 50. Put in 1,000, they'll give you 500. It's just that easy. So go to mybookie.ag and sign up today with promo code BEARS100. At MyBookie, you play, you win, you get paid. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by SeatGeek. Let SeatGeek take the confusion out of your ticket buying experience. Instead of shopping dozens of sites all over the web for the best deal, let SeatGeek do the work for you. Their app scans the entire web for the best deals to your favorite game, concert, or show and rates them on a scale of 0 to 10 to let you know if you're getting the best bang for your buck. Use promo code ACAA at checkout to receive $20 off your first purchase. That's $20 off the first purchase. So what, what are you waiting for? Promo code ACAA for $20 off your purchase. SeatGeek, life's an event. We have the tickets. My guest today, one of my favorite people of all time. Uh, former head coach of my alma mater, Western Illinois uh, University. He was a longtime assistant to Hayden Fry in the University of Iowa. We cover that. We cover his time at Western. And we also dabble at the end. So you got to stick around. Dabble at the end with his time at when there was a guy named Khalil. Khalil. Matt, no, this, some guy that plays for the Bears. You have to stick around in the whips on this show to to hear who it was. But I had a wonderful conversation uh, with Coach, and uh, was really happy to be able to get him on the show. Hope to have him on again uh, uh, real soon uh, because the man coached th- 37 years, and I'm sure that we didn't burn through all of his stories. Even though we, we got through an awful lot uh, when when I spoke to him uh, uh, last night. So, uh, what do you say we go ahead and get on with the show? It's the Don Patterson episode on the Bears Talk Underground, so let's get to it. Less than a week away from the Bears reporting to camp at Bourbon A and getting this 2019 campaign, this long-awaited campaign, uh, underway. Um, You know, the next Monday... The rookies report to camp a week from today on Thursday. The veterans show up and and tomorrow on Friday, a week from tomorrow, the first joint practice of the 2019 Chicago Bears gets underway and it's all rolling downhill from there until we finally get to September 5th, Thursday night. uh, You know, I was going to say Sunday night football, Thursday night football, Bears Packers kicking off 100 seasons of Bears football, kicking off 100 seasons of NFL football. It just can't get much better than that. The only thing better than all of that, 
a Bears W at the end of the night. So, And we all know that's going to happen. Aaron Rodgers ain't got nothing for the Bears. That's nothing. Nothing. Anyway, really excited about this episode, as you heard me just say there uh, uh, in the open. Coach Don Patterson, uh, former head coach at Western Illinois, my alma mater, longtime assistant to the legendary Hayden Fry uh, at the University of Iowa for for 20 years at Iowa and a year at North Texas State before they came to uh, Iowa. We kind of go through the the journey, if you will, meeting up in, at North Texas, uh, you know, rebuilding the program at the University of Iowa to the perennial uh, Big Ten contender uh, that it is now. That all started with Don Patterson and Hayden Fry at the University of Iowa back in 1979, 70, 79, 80, around that time uh, when they uh, arrived in Iowa City and 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 reinvigorated the uh, the program to where it is uh, now, 40 years later. It's uh, it is it is leaps and bounds from where it was when Hayden Fry uh, first got his hands uh, on it. We talk about his time at Western Illinois, where he and I uh, crossed paths with one another, and the end of his uh, illustrious career. Uh, he was at UConn, but before that, he was at uh, the University of Buffalo for a few years uh, with a guy named uh, Khalil Mack. So that's kind of the the what you, what you come to the interview for come to see come to hear about Khalil Mack stay for the rest of the stories of this amazing uh the amazing man amazing career uh that he had so before we get to that uh got some uh quick news and notes uh for you guys we already mentioned the uh Bears reporting to camp next Monday for the rookies next Thursday for the vets and um you know we're gonna have uh, Emery Moorhead on the show next week to uh talk about training camp uh you know kind of talk about the differences uh between what emory moorhead and uh the 85 bears had to go through to get ready for for their championship run compared to what these players in 2019 uh go through uh maybe it's more of a year-round thing for these guys as opposed to uh nfl salaries not being that you know lucrative uh back uh, in the 80s that's why they went on strike like three times in a decade to try to get that uh that extra coin for the players so they could be full-time players because i think even into the 80s there were still guys that had uh jobs in the offseason to make ends meet because they weren't making enough as uh, as pro football players so it was a very select few that were making the big money so that they could be pro football players and only pro football players but i think that was something that carried into the uh into the 80s where guys still had to have jobs in the offseason because they weren't making enough um, to carry them through uh, the offseason. So we'll talk to Emery about that uh, and, and a ton more. I still We still talk to him about the, the 100-year celebration. He was definitely in attendance uh, for that. Maybe even talk about the, uh, the top 100 team and see how, what he thinks of my all-decades uh, idea. Instead of doing a top 100 where you're trying to compare guys from the 20s to the teams that played in the 80s or the 90s or even today and, and ranking them in a top 100 list maybe you should have just gone with a, the 20s team the 30s team the 40s team the 50s teams and 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 so on and and you're you're defining those players within their own eras and creating what the squads would have looked like over that decade period of time i think number one it opens you up to so many other players you eliminate the ranking so you're not saying that this player is better than that one or anything like that and it, you know you get a better sense of the players and who they were within their own era and and how the bears have have you know paved the way in the nfl and, and being the longest standing franchise uh in the league 
you know, founded by the, the Papa Bear himself, uh, uh, George Hallis. So we'll talk to that. We'll talk to Emery about that uh, and uh, so much more. Uh, talk about a new surprise guest, uh, you know, an exciting guest uh, that I just spoke to today. And uh, he's agreed to come on the show. So now we got to figure out when he'll be on the show. But I promise to uh, try to get him on before we start talking about those preseason games with Carolina on the 8th and uh, – forget who we have on the 16th. I know we got the Colts in there somewhere. We got the Titans uh, and, and, and whatnot. So uh, looking forward to, uh, to that. It's going to be a lot of fun to have him back on the show uh, as well. I'll tell you that on the back end of this interview with Coach Patterson. A couple more things. Uh, Coach Nagy really kind of rubbed me the wrong way a few weeks ago, throwing out the first pitch at uh, – what are they calling the baseball stadium with the sign? I have no idea. Comiskey, Comiskey Park. It'll always be Comiskey Park. Kind of like how the Rose, uh, the the Allstate Arena will always be the Rosemont Horizon uh, for me. That's always going to be Comiskey Park. That's what it was when they laid down the bricks of that place back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So it's always Comiskey uh, to me. Uh, Nagy threw out the first pitch for them a few weeks back wearing those dreadful black uniforms. Well, he has come back to the light side of the force. God bless you, coach throughout the first pitch for the North Siders and the Cubs at Wrigley uh, the other day threw a rope too man nice little fastball you know I don't I think it was a ball like on the outside corner I don't know if it was a strike but the catcher didn't have to move he didn't have to make an athletic move to get it or anything like that but uh, coach Nagy threw out the pitch saying that the the seventh inning stretch and there's some controversy about something he said during the seventh inning stretch find the video and I'm sure that you'll be able to spot it I'm not going to talk about it here we know what he was trying to say but what it sounded like he said that's where the controversy comes in so anyway go ahead and check that out online go and see Nagy throwing the pitch because like I said he threw a rope uh for a nice little you know could have been called a strike you never know umpires these days but uh and then singing the uh seventh inning stretch check that out as well that was pretty entertaining uh last couple things Devin Hester's son uh I did not get the little guy's name but uh there's a video circulating of him uh, putting the moves on some teammates. I mean, <laughs> this kid is literally like breaking ankles. Like, I think this kid dislocated his hip, his ACL, rolled his ankle over twice, just trying to stop with the move that had, that, that Hester's kid uh, put on him. And you see him do it like four or five times in the video. I mean, and it is cut and gone. You know, he's he, he makes that cut and from the cut, pew, just like like a bullet out of a gun shoots in the other direction. Nobody lays a finger on him in like the five or six runs that he does uh, in that video. So uh, keep an eye open for the younger Hester uh, to come along someday because he definitely inherited uh, dad's moves. Uh, that's for sure. And then finally, an interesting at first it was a quote and then I actually saw the video. Cordero Patterson. Uh, was asked by a media member, I think it was some kind of, uh, maybe it was a charity function or something like that. It wasn't a Bears uh, thing. Asked him what it felt like to be a Super Bowl champion. And the answer was actually pretty surprising. He's like, that Super Bowl uh, doesn't mean anything to me. I'm paraphrasing because uh, he used the S word. He doesn't mean, uh, doesn't mean S to me. Um, I'm on a new team now and I'm going to, you know, work into building my legacy with this. Uh, new team so this the Super Bowl that was last season that's behind me I'm here with the Bears I'm looking forward to what we're going to be able to do here uh, in Chicago a surprising answer um, you know usually people would just be like you know what it feels great uh, you know I'm, I love it and blah 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 it was a great experience and he's like yeah forget about that it's like I'm worried about 
we're not talking about Super Bowl 53. That's old stuff. We're, we're on to 54 now. We're, we're working on getting to Miami, uh, you know, Atlanta. That's that's old news. So uh, very interesting when I saw that. And uh, I think he's got his head in the right space for that. He's not living on his time with uh, with the Patriots. He's trying to make his most of his time here with our beloved Chicago Bears uh, in Chicago. So uh, I'm really interested in seeing what 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 Patterson is going to bring to the to the table. And it's ironic that the last news and note thing that we're talking about is uh, Cordero Patterson when we're talking to Coach Don Patterson uh, on the show tonight. So um, I think that's a, with a perfect segue, if you will, to go from talking about the uh, the, you know, Cordero Patterson, the the fire plug that uh, could be one of the top utility men in the league this year. He's lined up at running back. He's been a receiver. He's the, he was the difference in the game between the Bears and the Patriots last year when he ran that kickback for a touchdown. Those two special teams touchdowns, he produced uh, one of them, and the Bears lost by a touchdown. So Cordell Patterson was the difference for the Patriots in that game. Hopefully he'll be the difference maker in a few games uh, for us this year uh, as well. So we'll use that as our, our segue to get to our interview with Coach Don Patterson, uh, former head coach of Western Illinois, uh, my alma mater, longtime assistant to Hayden Fry at the University of Iowa, and quite honestly, one of my favorite people uh, of all time. So without further ado, myself and Don Patterson, enjoy the talk. Part number two of our little interview series here in this little period between our opponent preview episodes and the start of the 2019 uh, preseason has a very special guest with me on the show. Uh, longtime assistant to the legendary Hayden Fry, longtime head coach of my alma mater, Western Illinois, Coach Don Patterson. Coach, welcome to the show, sir. Larry, it's great to be with you. Thanks for uh, extending the invitation. I appreciate you coming. Uh, if you don't mind, I have a small, I have a little story I want to tell you before we get started, okay? Okay. All right. So remember 2002, the fall of 2002, our long commute from Macomb, Illinois, to Cedar City, Utah, to play Southern Utah. You remember that trip? I remember it vaguely. I remember vaguely. we won the game. We did. Yes, we did. Uh, well, it was a very long uh, commute. Uh, we, we drove from Macomb to Chicago to fly from Chicago to Las Vegas to drive from Las Vegas to Cedar City, Utah. It was about a 14, 15-hour commute from where we started to where we finally finished. And between Las Vegas and Cedar City, we stopped at a casino in Mesquite, Nevada to feed the team before heading off to the hotels. After we I got do done, remember that. You do remember that. Okay, great. So after we have dinner, I'm standing outside the casino i came out by myself i see a little huddle of people kind of off to the right there about 10 15 feet away so i go to stand over the, with them while we wait for the team to, to get bussed up so we can all get into our vehicles and finally head off to the hotels and as i'm standing there in this little circle there's an older gentleman talking to everybody and finally he pipes in and asks me who might you be young man i'm like oh my name is uh larry dyer and he says oh yes donnie's told me about you to which i said and who might you be? And then laser beams from the crowd of people surrounding him burning a hole in my face. And that coach is how I met Hayden Fry. So yep. I had no idea. Yeah, you're talking about a, you're talking about a college football Hall of Fame coach, of course. Absolutely. He's a great football coach. And Coach Fry is still alive. He celebrated his 90th birthday uh, back in February, last day of February. Wow. 
and I had the privilege of having lunch with he and Shirley uh, at the end of April. And they're, he's hanging in there, and, and he's sharp as ever mentally. About that. I mean, I just... Uh... As as my, and of course I knew who Hayden Fry was. I was well aware of his reputation and that you had coached with him uh, for many many years. And and I knew the the legend that he was. But obviously I had no idea what Hayden Fry looked like because there I was standing in front of him and I didn't realize it until everyone was ready to kill me for asking Coach Hayden Fry who he was. So uh, not my finest moment, but very uh, very memorable to me at least. Yeah, well, Coach Fry was the kind of guy, he was never really offended by much of anything, just a really warm people person, and I think that's one of the keys to his success as a coach. And there it was, you know, so that was uh, that was my little story. I, like, I'll never forget that as, as long as I live. Uh, I found it f- deeply flattering, uh, actually, on two fronts. Uh, number one, that Hayden Fry knew who I was before I spoke to him, and number two, you apparently had still, you know, gave him a reason to know who I was in 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 the first place made me feel very good about what I was doing for you and for the program at the time. Well, you, you did help us a lot, Larry. And, and I guess that was my way of showing that I appreciated it by mentioning to coach Fry uh, a little bit about your background. And I appreciated that. So, but you know, let's go a little bit further back than your time with, with coach Fry. You, 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 you start uh, your, your, your time on this planet in, in Texas in the fifties. And, um, then you, 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 what was it like for you as, as a kid growing up? Were you a football fan growing up? Because thinking back, there was no pro football in Texas back then, but was it still a part of your life when you were younger? Well, actually, as I got a little bit older, I managed to see the Dallas Cowboys in year one, actually, right. in the Cotton Bowl. And they were terrible back then. They had a quarterback <laughs> by the name of Eddie LeBaron that some of your older listeners might remember. Uh, he stood about five foot six, and I'm pretty sure he had quite a few passes batted down over his NFL career. But the Cowboys were a new franchise, and and uh, I still remember. I think I was nine years old at the time, something like that. My dad taking me to a Dallas Cowboy game in the Cotton Bowl. Wow, wow. So I mean, how did football come I- into your life? Was it always something that you were were you a fan of? Was it something that you kind of fell into because you you went off to you you were an army cadet you went to to, to Ar- in annapolis right oh don't say annapolis now. i'm sorry what did i what did i say wrong <laughs> uh united states military academy west point west point i'm sorry i'm sorry but that's yeah okay that's quite okay you know even as a kid larry i always enjoyed football my high school had a good tradition of football so mm. i remember when we were really really young we had our own game going across the uh, just outside the end zone across the field. And this was a small high school in Texas, so it wasn't that difficult to, you know, to be a good player on a on a school team that was uh, small just in terms of enrollment. We didn't have that many players, but I thoroughly enjoyed the game. I was a, a good player, not a great player. Played quarterback and defensive back. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed the strategy of the game. I think even as a high school kid, I was really into the strategy of the game, and of course, I watched the NFL on the weekends and learned as best I could about the game. And I will take you forward, Larry, to my plebe year at at West Point. Uh, we were up as roommates talking one minute after taps. You know, when when um, when twenty three hundred rolls around, that's eleven o'clock for all those civilians out there. Right. Um, you know, you got to turn your lights off, and one minute you're spit shining your shoes, and the next minute you're supposed to have all the lights off and be asleep. Uh, but of course it's 
Now easy to fall asleep immediately. So we were talking one night about what we were going to be doing in 20 years. And at the age of 18, I said to my roommates, I think I'd like to coach college football. Hmm. And 20 years later, I was doing it, Larry. And for that matter, 47 years later, I was still doing it. So I was really fortunate. I got to coach for 37 years. I coached until I was 65. You know, you feel fortunate if you're able to coach that long. Because as you get older, of course, there's a tendency to want to go with younger coaches. So I was blessed with a, a long career and a good career. And it all started with my hiring by uh, Hayden Fry. I worked for Coach Fry for 21 years, one year at North Texas, and then all 20 years at Iowa. I'm always proud to state that he and I were the only ones that were here all 20 years. Hmm. And um, that's still the best decade in Iowa football history is the decade of the 80s. And it means a lot to me that I was an integral part of that. Yeah, I was I was going through the uh, the, the 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 history of the team back in the eighties, and uh, you, you you went out there and and uh, eighty one was the first really successful team that you guys uh, had. Uh, then you had the that team in eighty five, ranked number one in the country for several weeks. Uh, Chuck Long second in the the Heisman voting. They said the closest Heisman voting ever, losing out to Bo Jackson. Uh, that year, you guys yeah, make I think another. That, I think ahead. that's still true. Yeah, I think yeah, it is. I think that's actually. still true. I think it's the closest closest vote ever. Uh, here's one thing I'll mention about that '81 team. Mm-hmm. You got to realize, Larry, we only we only showed up here in '79. Yeah. So we went from the we went from the the uh, outhouse to the penthouse in three years, and that is still to this day the fastest turnaround in the history of the Big Ten. It's something we're all proud of. Uh, Gary Barnett did a great job at Northwestern. He was able to go to Pasadena in year four. And then one of our own guys also went in year four at Wisconsin, and that, of course, is Barry Alvarez. Right. Yeah, quite a coaching so, but tree. We are the only, yeah, the only staff to do it in three years is the one that was at Iowa back in 1981. Because that's one thing that I was interested in as to, to when, when you and Coach Fry arrived in, in Iowa is like the, 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 the state of the – uh, program and and it was when I was reading the it was on Wikipedia and I was reading it yesterday saying that uh, when when Iowa beat Michigan at this point it was the first time they'd won in 15 years or the first time that they'd beaten uh, Illinois in 12 years and things like that like there was this long long lineage of losing for Iowa against their Big Ten uh, opponents that Hayden Fry kind of put a stop to uh, when you guys came to town and took over for the Hawkeyes. That's true. To get it, to put it in proper perspective, I do recall this. Iowa, before we arrived, had 17 consecutive non-winning seasons. Mm. I think there was at least there's definitely at least one 500 team in there in those 17 years. Maybe a second one. I'm not sure about the second, but I do know there was a 500 season in there back in those days. You only played 10 games, and um, and yet they'd gone a couple of decades without winning, so almost a couple of decades. So. It was really meaningful to the fans to be able to win. It was meaningful for all of us. Uh, and for that matter, when Coach Fry, he'd had a lot of success at North Texas, and that was my first year in coaching. I remember at the end of the season we were debating, should we should we consider which of these three offers? We had, Coach Fry had offers from Oklahoma State, Mississippi State, and the University of Iowa. And Coach Brazier, our defensive coordinator, said, well, I'm for what it's worth, I'm voting for Iowa, and I'll tell you why. When you win at Iowa, you only go to the best bowl game of all. So I'm um, I'm up for that. Well, I don't think Bill knew at the time that I would gone quite a quite a long period of time without without seeing Pasadena. So there was work to be done, but we were never afraid to 
to find a way to outwork people, and we got it done quicker than anyone would expect. Yeah, it was quite a uh, quite a decade of success. Uh, you 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 were, you were talking about there how sometimes they only played ten games, and I had forgotten with with all of those marathon overtime games that exist in college football now that ties were a thing in, in college football because there was a bowl team that you guys. You, I think it was maybe it may have even been a Rose Bowl team that took a six three and three record to a bowl game that year. I do remember that we had a season with three losses, and the joke then, of course, was: um, Is there any reason we have to wear ties for this particular <laughs> function? Because we were sick of ties. Yeah, uh, pretty amazing to have three ties in one year. We actually had a tie. Here's a here's a good trivia question for those fans out there that think they're really really good BYU fans. We happened to play BYU in the in the Holiday Bowl uh, one year. We had an excellent team, and so did they. they matter of fact, they had a Heisman Trophy winner, uh, a quarterback, and um, now I can't think of his name. You'll, you'll probably know it right off the top of your head. But um, anyway, we ended up playing those guys to a tie. I know what it was. It was Ty Detmer. Everybody remembers the name Ty Detmer. Oh, yeah. So here's the tr- answer to the trivia question. Who caught Ty Detmer's last college football pass and of course a BYU fan would assume that it's a BYU receiver in fact it was Carlos James a cornerback for the Iowa Hawkeyes how about that and uh, that's one reason the game ended in a tie we actually missed a field goal at the end of the game and at the the very end of the game uh, they had a pass interception they suffered a pass interception against us and, and the game ended up as a tie it seemed so silly all those fans from both schools and for that matter both teams had gone to the trouble of being in San Diego for a bowl game, and then we had to all walk away with a tie score. So I think for for those kind of reasons, I think overtime quickly followed. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, that would be disappointing to have to go to a bowl game and, and to, like you said, to travel to as far, especially with uh, for, for, for Iowa, to travel all the way to, to San Diego to uh, basically walk away with uh, just about as much as you started with uh, in, in that kind of uh, instance. Yeah, very true. So, you know, tell me, Coach, um, what was exactly the – what was it that the Coach Fry did when you guys got to Iowa that got the culture changed around as quickly as it did? Well, we were fortunate, Larry, because there was a really, really good football team that wore black and gold back then. And I'm talking about a team that played on Sunday. Hmm. And I bet you have an idea of who it might be. I do. I'm going to go with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yep. Yeah. Yep, and we got permission from the Steelers. Those stripes on our uniforms were exactly the same width as those stripes on the Steelers uniforms. <laughs> uh, so we were we were fortunate that they would allow us to um, to in many ways duplicate their uniform. It wasn't exactly a, a duplication, but but fundamentally it was a, a very very similar uniform uh, to that of uh, the Steelers. Um, I've heard from c- certain people in the Steelers organization that said they used to think of us as their triple a team you know we were their farm club nice. uh as a as a college team you know being followed by a bunch of professional players but uh, that's one thing that went in our favor and the other thing that comes to mind we I, I still remember the meeting this is a meeting in the summer before our first fall and the big question that was solved on that particular day was what kind of logo are we going to have on this helmet you know and as you can imagine with losing teams of course comes a new a new um, uh, mascot, a new dress code, whatever you want to call it, uh, from time to time, you know, looking for a new identity, one that the fans will maybe renew their interest in. 
And so the one we came up with is the same exact tiger hawk that's on those helmets now. Wow. And uh, there were any number of options. I do recall that. That's the one we picked, and it was a good choice because uh, you'll see, that's one of the most recognized logos in all of college football today, and it all started back in that summer of 79. Wow. That's <laughs> So those those the way that that everyone knows Iowa football today that seems to be synonymous and uh you know of always attached to the team was started by Hayden Fry. Yep, that's true. Wow. So one other thing that I've always wondered about, I mean we've I've heard the myths and the legends about them. I know that they're real, so they're not myths or legends, but what's what was the story with the pink locker rooms and for the visitors at Kinnick Stadium? Well, uh, for starters, you know, Coach Fry was a psychology major, uh-huh. and he certainly he certainly understand the uh, the power of the mind, and he he certainly uh, uh, was very calculated in all the things he did with the team. Uh, a lot of those same stories he told at Iowa are the stories I repeated later at Western Illinois, and mm-hmm. I was able to have the satisfaction of telling Coach Fry, Coach Fry, those stories are still working. Those motivational stories you told at Iowa. I'm telling them in Macomb, Illinois, and they're still working. Uh, and I think that meant something to Coach Fry that that was the case. At any rate, uh, Coach Fry knew that pink was a, a color that tends to to make people relax and and um, doesn't exactly inspire them to to uh, emotional effort. And um, and that's how it all started. That's how the pink locker room became as such. And and it really uh, it really did have a positive effect. We had an excellent home record. I do recall in one particular year, this is after several years, um, no less than Bo Schembechler had his managers go out. They went down to one of the grocery stores and came back with a bunch of butcher paper, and they were spending all their free time putting this paper all over those pink walls. And uh, when Coach Fry heard about that, he, he laughingly told Bo, he said, I think we got you again because you're so preoccupied with our locker room that you're not even thinking about the game. Yeah. Uh, and we did have a great history with Michigan. Coach Fry would tell you, I believe, uh, that Bo Schembechler was one of his all-time favorites, maybe his all-time favorite opposing coach. He and Bo, of course, thought a lot of, a lot the same way. They're both uh, two of the greatest coaches that ever ever walked the sideline. Yes. And uh, I'm pr- privileged to have known them both. Yeah, and that team in in '85 that was uh, that, that was ranked number one for a spell. Uh, there was like one of the marquee games of that season was one versus two Iowa versus Michigan. Yes, Larry. And as you already know, it's very, very seldom when one versus two even plays in the regular season. Right. And here it is a showdown game in the big 10. It happened to be in Kinnick stadium. I've always jokingly said there were 70,000 people that day for the game, but I bet there's at least 170,000 that have claimed to have been there. Right. Uh, Cause it was a great game. It had all kinds of drama. We actually had a touchdown pass that was that was uh, ruled to be out of the end zone. That was before instant replay, uh, and yet in the press box, of course, they have access to replay. The TV people did, and it was clear that the back judge missed the call. We ended up kicking a field goal rather than scoring a touchdown. And late in the game, we are we are down ten to nine, as you recall, mm-hmm. or maybe you don't recall that, but I certainly do. So we've been held to three field goals. Michigan had a great defense. We had a great football team as well, of course. We both did. And um, we had one last opportunity to drive down the field, and we got it done. Uh, game-winning field goal as time expired. It couldn't have been played out better. There's a funny story related to that missed call in the back of the end zone. Mm-hmm. The receiver for us on that play, and he caught the ball about six inches inside the end zone. 
Uh, his name is Scott Helverson, and you wouldn't believe this, but it's true. Scott Helverson now works as an NFL back judge. He's the same <laughs> official that blew the call that day, that day in the Iowa-Michigan game. Wow. <laughs> That's something right there. So, uh, I mean, just an amazing, uh, amazing uh, time that you had there at Iowa. And, and one more question about the, the, the turnaround that you were able to do. When you have a program that had the amount of success that Iowa had before uh, you and Hayden got there, um, it, it's not exactly the, the best spot for, for trying to get recruits. So how did you focus on, on getting players to come uh, to Iowa to play for a program that hadn't had any winning seasons, like you said, in up to 17 years at that point? Well, Iowa is the least populated state in the Big Ten. And yeah. Obviously, you got to go outside of the boundaries of the state to recruit football players. We recruited all over the Midwest, of course. We had good success, and Iowa had a tradition that went back to the days of Forrest Evashevsky, a tradition of recruiting players off the East Coast. And fortunately for us, uh, Coach Fry retained uh, one of those coaches that had been recruited to play at Iowa back in the late 50s. His name is Bernie Wyatt, and Bernie's a great recruiter and did a great job recruiting the East Coast for us. And, of course, Coach Fry has a reputation in Texas that's second to none, so it was logical that we would recruit Texas. I had the privilege of recruiting North Texas, and Carl Jackson had the privilege of recruiting uh, basically the Houston area, which, of course, is a hotbed for football, too. Sure. Um, I figured out pretty quickly the best sales pitch to talk to a kid from Dallas as far as the University of Iowa went, Larry. I always told them, explained to them this way, in the state of Iowa, we do not have professional sports. Yeah. So if you're a little kid growing up in Iowa, you aspire someday to be able to play for the Iowa Hawkeyes. So the way I explained it to a kid from Dallas, we are the Dallas Cowboys of Iowa. Yeah. And uh, and that certainly had good effect on those kids because they realized I wasn't lying to them. Uh, you know, everybody supported the Hawkeyes. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely true. I've lived in uh, Iowa for pretty much my entire uh, adult life, and black and gold is everywhere, especially where I'm hanging out these days. Uh, I live in Cedar Rapids, but I work in Iowa City, and that town is painted in black and gold as it should be. Uh, it is absolutely everywhere out there. Yeah, an Iowa football game is its not a game. It's an event. It you is. Know, it's a, yeah. a special event, and uh, most years there are seven of those home Saturdays. or I guess Nebraska might be played on Friday, of course, on Black Friday, but, but um, everybody that knows anything about Iowa football knows about those seven home games, and they probably haven't committed to memory even. They're not going to be out of town on those weekends if they can help it. Yeah, and uh, tailgating starts early out there for sure. Uh, for an 11 o'clock kickoff or a 1 o'clock kickoff, it's, uh, they're, they're beating the sun uh, out there sometimes getting ready to tailgate for those games. Yeah, I don't really understand it. Of course, for all those years, I never, <laughs> I never really was part of the tailgate scene, so right. I, I never really understood why do people show up so early for a football game and, of course, with TV nowadays, you might have an 11 o'clock kick. Yeah. And uh, and yet that means they're simply going to show up at 6 o'clock rather than 7 or 8. Uh, they're going to get the tailgating in one way or the other. If they have to start early, that's what they'll do. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, so when, you, um, when you're out there in, uh, in, at Iowa, um, when you were recruiting, do you, are there any, any players that we might know that you brought to Iowa? Well, probably of all the Texas players that, that the general public knows, uh, I recruited some from 
Wisconsin that were great players and, and some that were great players from Texas. Probably the best known is a guy that ended up ha- having a great career. He had a great career at Iowa, but he also had a great career with the 49ers. Uh, and for that matter, he went to work for the NFL in their front office, and his name is Merton Hanks. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, Merton, was, Merton was a great football player. Uh, I, st- I like to tell the story about how I found Merton. Um, he went to Lake Highlands High School in Dallas, and I was looking at a running back from Louisville High School, which is a suburb of Dallas. This is a great back that was being recruited by everyone. And I happened to be watching game tape of of Lake Highlands versus Louisville, and that running back broke free from the line of scrimmage time and time again. He always got tackled by that same guy. And so my question to the Louisville coach is, who is that? Who is that safety that's playing? Playing for Lake Highlands because I gotta I gotta check into that guy. He's impressed me because your guy can't make him miss, and your guy's a great back. And that was Merton Hanks. It came down to us in the University of Texas because uh, he was highly recruited. Uh, but I'll always be grateful to, to Merton that he chose Iowa because that was not the popular choice. As you can imagine, if you grow up in Texas, people frown on you leaving the state, and and yet Merton had the courage to do that because he was convinced that Iowa was a better place for him. Was there anybody that we might know that you that you recruited that you missed out on? Well, people have asked me what's the what's your favorite recruit that you were not able to sign, right? And I I can give you a definite answer there, but I give you a couple of clues first. Okay, he did go on to win the he did go on to win the Heisman Trophy. Ooh, okay. And the high the high school he went to had another player from that high school that also won the Heisman Trophy. Two Heisman Trophy winners from one high school. Isn't that amazing? Amazing, yeah. It's Woodrow, it's Woodrow Wilson High School in Dallas, and that player is a guy by the name of Tim Brown <laughs> who went on to play, of course, for the Fighting Irish. Yeah. Um, let me tell you a quick story about Tim because sure. it says so much about him. Everybody in the country recruited Tim Brown. He was a great player. There's no doubt about it. Actually, the football program was not very good. But Tim just stood out, of course, because he was like a one-man show. Sure. Um, anyway, as the recruiting process developed, uh, I was so excited to be able – kids can only make five official visits, and Tim had 100 choices. And thankfully for us, we were one of those five choices. So wouldn't you know it, the weekend he was scheduled to come to Iowa, uh, a day before he was supposed to get on that airplane on Friday, on Thursday, his mom said, Tim, I am sorry – you are not going to leave this house this weekend because you're under the weather and, and you're never going to get well again if you don't give yourself some rest. Mm. And Tim said, Mom, you don't understand. I made a promise to Coach Patterson that I was going to make that trip and I was going to fully investigate Iowa. And, Mom, I'm going on the trip. You may not like it, but I'm going on the trip. And we did get special permission from the NCAA to have Tim see a doctor and get some medication while he was here. You know, I know that he didn't he didn't feel well at all while he was here, but I'll always have great respect for Tim Brown because he was a man of his word. He kept his word. He made that trip even though he didn't feel up to it. He still made that trip and gave us every opportunity to, to sell our program as well as all those others. Was there a, a, a type of player that you were looking for? Because obviously these are, all, these are all talented kids uh, that you were looking for. And, and one thing that, that I remember from my time at Western Illinois being in being a part of your program was that every one of those guys that I met and got to know were all good 
guys. They were all good people. They were they weren't uh, egos. They didn't have big egos or anything like that. They made me feel part of the program, even though I wa- technically I wasn't and things like that. They were all good people, some of which I'm still in contact with today. Was that something that you guys looked for because they were, you know, more coachable people or or things like that? Because that seemed to be a common theme in all the the teams that I that I was a part of uh, while at, during your time at Western. Larry, you're exactly right. Coach Fry always said, always but always insist that your players have great character. Don't even recruit a guy. I don't care how well he plays. Don't recruit him if he's a bum. If he's not, if he's not a good person, if he if he doesn't put the team ahead of himself, then you better think long and hard about recruiting him because uh, you know he's going to be more trouble than he's worth. Um, so that's what we always look for was high character. We look for ability, of course. Sure. We look for mental toughness, physical toughness, of course. Uh, you had to be a good student because football is a more complicated game than what the average listener realizes, mm-hmm. uh, especially the way we played it. You know, we were ahead of our time with a lot of things we did, and you had to be bright. You had to have a good head on your shoulders to be able to understand what we were doing, and that's why we won. We recruited young men with great character, and what's what's neat about it, Larry, I've always told the players through the years, I never worried about them after they were done with their college career because I knew that they were well prepared to take on anything and everything in life. Because in football, you literally get knocked down. You you don't just figuratively get knocked down. You, you literally get knocked down too. Uh, but if you played for Coach Fry and if you played for me, I'd like to believe the players that I had would say the same thing about playing for me you understood what hard work and dedication and sacrifice was all about. You understood the importance of being on time. Uh, You understood for sure that it's more important to be part of a team than it is to be any kind of individual. I've always said football is the ultimate team sport. Sure. Because to win in football, you need so many people to get it done. And it goes well beyond those starters, as you know. Um, You know, those backup players, I always explain to them, you're one play away. Mm -hmm. And I always have stories I can tell about, a guy that wasn't ready to assume that starter's position when that starter went down. So you got to be ready. The third team player is two plays away. That's the mentality that the player has to have. Yeah, and, and that was something that I always found so uh, impressive and, and was you know obviously a nod to you that, that, the, that the, your players respected you enough to treat people that were peripheral to the program with the same level of respect they treated somebody that was uh, part of the program. Like I said, I always felt welcome uh, to you know, be on the trips with the team and interact with the guys, and 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 treated me like one of one of our own, and uh, when I would go on those trips, so that was something that I always uh, found impressive. I still remember Larry at the end of my coaching career. I was coaching at the University of Connecticut. I was coaching quarterbacks, and I remember that that very first meeting we had with those new quarterbacks. I said, "Here's the first thing you need to understand." It's not about you, and I was pointing at a particular player when I said that. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. As I went around the room and and identified all these quarterbacks individually, I said, it's not about me either. It's not about Bob Diaco. It's not about our head coach. It is all about team. And if you don't understand that, we're going to have a really difficult time getting along. And I'll tell you what a veteran coach does, Larry, after a big win in the locker room. Uh, A veteran coach looks around the room to see – to find that one guy, and hopefully there's not any, but there's always, it seems like, one or two, to find those players that are not happy about the fact that we just earned a big win. Uh, because that's a very telltale sign, and that simply means 
they do not place the team above themselves. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you find those guys, you better address it, you know, because they're not, you know, they're a round peg trying to fit into a square hole. It's not going to work. Right. So you address it. You either, you either cause them to change their attitude or, or you, uh, you ask them to move on. And, you know, coach, you were part of a, a very, uh, lucrative, uh, coaching tree, uh, that came under, uh, uh, Hayden Fry. You mentioned Barry Alvarez, uh, before, uh, Bill Snyder was also on the staff at one point, uh, Jim Levitt, who was head coach at, uh, South Florida, uh, Bert Bielema, uh, Bob Stoops, and obviously Kirk Ferentz all coached under, uh, you know, Hayden Fry. How many of those guys were there together all at the same time? Well, just this past August, at the at the end of August, they always identify the first football game, the first home game in the fall, as what they call Fry Fest. It's a it's a right. It's a a date set aside to honor Coach Fry. And this past year, as Coach Fry's gotten older, you know, he was 89 last fall, and he couldn't make it up here because he's retired now and down in Texas. They thought, why don't we honor the 1983 staff? They always pick the 83 staff for a reason. There were a lot of great coaches on that staff. A lot of us went on to become head coaches, and not just head coaches, but successful head coaches. Yeah. Uh, a matter of fact, the reason they picked the 83 staff is we had a grad assistant on that staff by the name of Bobby Stoops. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bobby did okay for himself at Oklahoma in particular. Yeah, he did all right. Uh, he was a great coach. Yeah, he was a great coach long before he got to OU, but but um, he's just one of many. There was another one that you did not mention a minute ago. You went through a... Uh, a lot of the the list of head coaches that came off that staff, but here's another one that that did slip by you, and that was Dan McCarney, who did a great job for Iowa, yeah. but also did a great job for Wisconsin with Barry Alvarez, and then went on to be a great head coach at Iowa State. Um, so you know that's just another in a long line of good coaches. Uh, a lot of people, Coach Fry's very proud of this. He has more more former coaches that have been head coaches than any coach. In the history of college football, it's, I think he's just one or two ahead of Bear Bryant. He and Bear Bryant are the top two. Bobby Bowden is real, real high on that list. Uh, but that's one thing Coach Fry is very proud of. He always said, you know, I, one of my greatest abilities is to, is to pick assistant coaches. And it all started with picking coaches that have someday aspired to be head coaches, you know, that had that kind of leadership within them and, and that had that kind of work ethic that you needed and, of course, that fully embraced team concepts it's all about team it's not about you um you know we work very closely with the if i'm an offensive coach i work very very closely with my defensive counterpart uh because we're on the same team and and uh, obviously if the bottom line here's what the players understand very thoroughly if on offense if we lose 38 35 then we failed on offense we did not get it done so there's none of this finger pointing that goes on uh, a defensive player, if they, if we lose 10-7, then that defensive player understands we gave up too many points. Yeah. You know, we have to find a way to hold them to fewer points than what we score. So it's very much a shared responsibility, and it was taught from day one, and uh, and that's the same thing I always did at Western Illinois as well. Um, did you have any um, – were there any instances that maybe you would have been able to – leave Iowa to take a head coaching job before you actually did at Western Illinois? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, actually, there's a, a, a pretty pretty good story relating to that. I was working late one night, like I always did, 
And my wife called up and she said, I just want to give you a heads up that you're going to get a phone call in a few minutes. And it was already 10 o'clock or later. And uh, I said, okay, who from? And she said, it's a writer from the Kansas City Star. And um, the University of Kansas was had just fired their coach. And this writer had a, an unusual idea for a story. He said, the, the purpose of the story and the reason he wanted to talk to me, he said, um, I know who the next coach at KU should be. You've never heard of him before. His name's Don Patterson. Hmm. Well, here was his rationale. Bill Snyder had gone to Kansas State and done great things at Kansas State. And he figured if we can't hire Kansas State's head coach to come to KU, we should hire somebody that worked for Bill Snyder, that thinks like Bill Snyder. Uh, they can give us the same advantage that Bill Snyder has given to Kansas State. Hmm. And that was me. And uh, the rest of that story, though, Larry, we were in, right in the middle of our season. Uh, not in the middle. It was in November, I guess. But we had a big game coming up on the weekend. And and um, I, I told my wife, um, you know, our time is not very good. Our daughter was in high school at the time. And she said, well, I understand you want to be a head coach. And, um, and you know, if, if they make that offer to you, I understand. There's no way you can't think long and hard about accepting it. But just for the record, we're going to stay here in Iowa City until Brooke finishes school, and we'll come down on the weekends and see you. But I hope you understand, you know, it'd be nice if she could finish high school where she started high school. And I certainly understood that. But the bottom line, Larry, is I I did I, I did go to Coach Fry the next day, and I said, Coach, you need to know about this. This is going to hit the Kansas City papers. But I want you to know I had nothing to do with it. This guy called me. I haven't pursued this opportunity at all with KU. Mm-hmm. And I never did call KU. My mentality then was, if you want me to be your coach, you can call me. Sure. And um, and I don't know exactly. You know, I'm not really privy to exactly what happened in their decision making process. But I didn't pursue it. I think they had an idea that, you know, that I was maybe kind of lukewarm about about that opportunity. I, I was very happy at Iowa. Certainly, we had some great teams uh, through all those years. And. I was very loyal to Coach Fry because he gave me my first job in coaching. I worked for the man for 21 years. Yeah, and um, and for that matter, of course, we had we had um, lifelong friends that we'd made in Iowa City. So I was okay with them not offering me the job, but that's one opportunity that did get away. And as I look back on it, I was probably foolish to not pursue it. You know, because maybe if I'd pursued it, maybe I would have been the KU coach, but. We don't know what might happen going forward, Larry. Maybe I would have been fired in three years and never had a 37-year career in coaching. There you go. So it's just hard hard to say. You really can't second guess. Right. So at the at the end of of Coach Fry's uh, tenure, was it was it always the the goal to somewhere to go somewhere else? Did you did you want the job at Iowa? Were you a candidate at Iowa? I was a finalist for the Iowa job, but here's what I knew: it got to be harder and harder to recruit as Coach Fry got older. I think he was 69 um, on his last day as a coach. And the other Big Ten schools, they would readily acknowledge, yes, he's a great football coach, but what would make you think he's going to be there for all of your years? And so it, it got more difficult to recruit. And and um, we had our worst season out of 20 years in his last year. And I was a finalist for the job, and I appreciated that opportunity to interview for the job. But I knew, as sure as anything, I wasn't going to get it. Because we just had our worst season out of 20. Right. Uh, I did have the satisfaction of hearing from somebody on the committee. They thought that I was the best interview. 
that I had a, the best plan for how to get Iowa back on track. I should have had the best plan because I was here that length of time and I knew what needed to be done. Um, but it still wasn't politically correct. No, at that point, the Iowa fans did not want Hayden Fry's right-hand man, and that's what I was. Mm-hmm. And um, and the other problem at that particular time frame is that um, the defensive coordinator was an outstanding coach as well. Bobby Elliott was his name. That's the son of Bump Elliott. Bump Elliott hired Hayden Fry to come to Iowa. So Coach Fry was in a real pickle because he really couldn't recommend one of us over the other. Right. Uh, because we were both good candidates, and, and he preferred to stay out of it at that point. It's a little bit like President Obama, I guess. He doesn't want to recommend anybody for the Democratic ticket right now. And uh, I think Coach Fry thought, well, I really can't recommend Coach Patterson or Coach Elliott over over the other because they're both outstanding coaches and they both deserve the job. So he left it up to um, to the AD and the, and the selection committee, and, and uh, they made an outstanding choice. Of course, in Kirk Ferentz, Kirk and I were on offense together back in the 80s. Uh, we were jogging buddies for nine years, uh, 81 through 89, every day at noon. We went for a five-mile run, and, and um, Kirk's a close friend to this day. I, I still do uh, analytical work for the Hawkeyes, and I do it for some other friends too, but I'm very, very loyal to Iowa football, and I do anything I can to help them win. Yeah, that's amazing, Coach. So you you made it over to Western Illinois, and that's where our paths finally crossed. You you started there in, in for the '99 season. That was actually my first year uh, at Western. Uh, I came to know you when I made the switch from physical education to a broadcasting major in 2000, and was part of the crew that did the the coaches uh, show. And that is where you know I got to know you and and become closer to the. Uh, program which i always just thought was the coolest thing because you know i I didn't think that that uh you know that you as a coach you'd be busy enough that that you wouldn't have time to to talk to us or or anything like that and you came in every week to do the coaches show uh with us i look forward to it uh every week and then in 2001 i was on the announced team and uh the rest is history from there but you talk about some of those those teams that you had uh, at Western, especially that 2002 team that we were talking about just a moment ago, probably the, the, the was was that the best team that you think you had the 2002 team that was ranked number two in the country. Well, the 2000 team was, of course, uh, a special team. That was our first championship, and right. then another championship in o in o two, and then we didn't win a championship in o three, but we had another outstanding team that went deep into the playoffs. Uh, gosh, it's hard to pick between the 02 and 03 teams. I think most people would say those were the two best teams we had. Sure. Uh, Larry, you probably know this. Our listeners probably do not, but those are the last championships that Western Illinois football won. Mm. And that's something I'm proud of, that we were able to get that done. It's a very difficult assignment because that is one of the very, as you know, that's one of the very best 1AA conferences in college football. Uh, what a great opportunity for us. Uh, uh, you know, I think back to some of those games that we won right at the end. We were always good with two-minute offense. You remember that? I do. We had quarterback. We had quarterbacks that had nerves of steel. You know, I always used to say if if we're down to one play to win the game, Russ McNeese's pulse rate's going to go up. Oh, I don't know, maybe one beat per minute. It's right. not going to go up very much at all because he is cool under fire. If he if he became a doctor, I'd want him operating on me because he is one. He is one smooth operator, one guy that never, ever became flustered in, in game situations. Uh, 
and, and truthfully, he should have been an NFL quarterback. That's another discussion. He ended up as a great arena ball quarterback, uh, but honestly, he should have played in the NFL for a long time. And, and as evidence of that, I'll take the listeners back to a game, a playoff game we had. And you tell me if it was 02 or 03. Mm-hmm. I believe it was 02. 2002, first round playoff opponent that year was Eastern Illinois. Yeah, that was 2002. We beat them. Yeah, 2002. We beat them something like 47 to 9. And the quarterback that day for Eastern Illinois was a guy by the name of Tony Romo. Romo, yep. <laughs> yeah, and there's not a single Eastern Illinois fan that wouldn't tell you that the better quarterback was, without question, Russ Mickner. Yeah. And um, and so, to Tony's credit, he, he was able to get on with the Cowboys. There's a, a little story there. The quarterback coach had a background with Eastern Illinois, and, and the tuna didn't, you know, Parcells didn't care who the third quarterback was, so... Tony got to be the third quarterback with the Cowboys. And to Tony's credit, he got a lot better. And the quarterback coach is now the coach of the New Orleans Saints. Sean you probably Payton. know that. Yeah, Sean Payton. Sean Payton, yeah. So there's a little bit of luck involved. You know, and it does help to have uh, a contact maybe to to give you a chance to make a team. Uh, but that was a great football team. Um, we lost in the uh, second round, we played a second round rematch against Western Kentucky. You remember yeah, the game well. I do. Uh, 31, 31 to 28 was the final. Yep. Mike Cyphers missed a, a 61 yard field goal, I believe it was, on the last play of the game that missed by about a yard. Uh, and then 13 days later, Western Kentucky won the national title. Yeah. So I've always said I wish we would have been on opposite sides of the bracket because I think it would have been an all. Gateway Conference National Championship game between us and Western Kentucky. Oh, I I definitely agree. I mean, that was one where I kind of felt like the um, that regional bracketing that the the that one AA uh, division did kind of worked against us because the those first couple of rounds you were playing teams that were kind of in your region with us playing. Eastern Illinois, Western Kentucky, I think, played Murray State, which wasn't very far away. And then it had those two teams clashing with each other in the second round. And it really was what I thought to be that basically the the winner of this game wins uh, the national championship. And that's exactly what happened. Western Kentucky went on to beat Georgia Southern and then – who did they beat? This, the Louisiana McNeese. team. Thank you, McNeese State. Beat McNeese pretty good. Beat yeah, them by did. several touchdowns. Yeah. And, I mean, it, that's something that was always – that season actually is has been my argument even since then about um, a big, a big, big-time big football or 1A uh, football going to a playoff system because in that year, Western Kentucky was, I think, number 12 going into the playoffs, and they beat the number three, the number two, and the number one team in the country to claim the national championship – when if we were going yeah. by BCS rules, it would have been us and McNeese State playing for the national championship because that's what the polls said were the top two teams that year. Yeah, you might recall that same season. We went down to Western Kentucky, and I believe beat them 10 nothing or 14 nothing. I 14, can't remember the yeah. score. I do remember we, we shut them out, and it's the first time they'd been shut out, I think, in about 10 years. Uh, but they they beat us the second time around in the playoffs. And, and, uh, and then since we're talking about – that particular time frame at Western Illinois, I'd like to touch on the 03 team to give them yeah. proper credit. Uh, this says it all. In the preseason, our athletic director came to me and he said, we already were scheduled to play Eastern Michigan in that fall of 03. And he said, Coach, how would you feel about playing another 1A opponent? And I said, yeah, I would consider that. We're going to beat Eastern Michigan anyway. 
uh, I was confident we'd be able to do that. And he mm-hmm. said, I said, who are you talking about? And he said, well, I don't know if you want to play this one or not. It'd be worth a lot of money to the athletic department, but it's a really tough assignment. And I said, who are you talking about? And he said, I'll give you a clue. They call it Death Valley. And I said, well, it's either LSU or Clemson. Which one? And he said, it's LSU. Wow. And I remember I remember this day, Larry, saying, yeah, we'll play him. And I found, before that, I found out how much money the school was going to get, and I found how much money it could go to the football program. And uh, without thinking twice, I said, yeah, we'll play him. And then I said, I take that back. It's not official yet because I want the captains to have the satisfaction of telling me that they want to play LSU. Right. So I went to the captains and I said, how do you guys feel about a second 1A opponent? It's one of the best teams in college football. And, um, of course, they didn't say, yeah, they said, hell yeah. Right. And uh, off we went to Baton Rouge and and Nick Saban was the coach of that team. And, by the way, that team did win the national title that year. And uh, we gave them a scare. We didn't beat them, but we gave them a scare. I've never been more proud of a football team. It was 13-7 in the middle of the third quarter, and we had the football. And there were 87,000 LSU fans that are wondering what in God's name is wrong with (laughs) the LSU football team. And nothing was wrong except they were playing the number one ranked team in one double A. That's right. We were number one ranked exactly for a week. We were number one ranked, and then after we – lost a hard-fought game to LSU. They dropped us back to number two. Um, but after that game, Nick Saban, I, I give Coach Saban so much credit, after the game he told the media, he said, we will not be hit any harder all season than what we were hit tonight. Uh, what a great tribute to a, an outstanding 1AA football team. Absolutely. And let me take a guess on who some of those captains were. I, I, would, get, I would wager that obviously Russ Mickna was one of them. And I would yep. go with uh, Lee Russell as another choice. Yeah, what what great young men. You know, those yes. are the kind of guys. Uh, the joke in the family is, is uh, well, the only people you think that are good enough for your daughter, Brooke, would be Lee Russell and Russ Mickner. That's what people <laughs> said at that time. That was the family joke. It's going right. to either be Lee Russell or Russ Mickner as a son-in-law because they're the only ones worthy of, of marrying Brooke. Um, just a family joke there. But... But uh, both great young men, and um, and kind of put it in perspective, Larry. We we lost a hard fought game that night, but we went on and had a great season. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we had a first round playoff opponent at Montana. Yes, and you remember that? Well, you maybe you didn't make that trip. Was your last year O two? My last year was O two, but I I was uh I actually it wasn't on TV yet because we didn't have ESPN three uh, to televise all the Western games back then. But I did listen to it via web stream. I was listening to the game uh, in at my. I was. I remember I was at my dad's house listening to the game and, and hearing about the. Was it was it either we we either made a field goal or they missed a field goal for us to win that game. Yeah, we made a field goal. There it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, come to think of it, I believe Fuad Khalil blocked a, a field goal on their part. Mm-hmm. It was an overtime game. Yes. It was forty-four to forty-one. Right. Uh, but here's here's the rest of that story. Of course. I'm I'm sitting here thinking, wow, this is going to be a tough assignment. Uh, and after the, I didn't tell the players before the game, but after the game, I told them, guys, today you did something. I didn't tell you until now, but here's what you need to know: we're the 20th playoff team to come to Montana. Not not regular season, but playoff team. Mm-hmm. We were only the third to win. Wow. So their home record after they lost to us was uh, 17 playoff wins and three losses. 
Um, and then, wouldn't you know it, we get rewarded with a second-round game in upstate New York. We played in 10 inches of snow. Yep. We were the better football team. We lost 28-27 to Colgate. And we knew with the weather forecast, we tried like the devil to get the game rescheduled to the Carrier Dome because we knew that on, on a good surface we'd, we'd beat Colgate. Well, we'd never played a game. In all my years at Western, we never had a game in the snow. So if, if the Western players had played in the snow, it had to have been in high school because it never happened in college. I know that for a fact. Um, and we figured out how to play, but we lost, lost by one. And then 13 days later, Colgate's playing for the national title. Yeah. And they lost, lost to a really fine Delaware team. So we were close that year, too. We were close in um, those two years in particular. You know, we had outstanding teams. Those, I think, were the two best teams we had. I'm uh, very proud of the young men that played in those in those games. And it goes way beyond the star players. You know, it gets into those guys that maybe didn't even take a snap in those games, but that still had everything to do with our preparation uh, by giving us a good look in the in the practice yeah those were uh those were fine football teams you had a lot of really good players uh for you out there at western coach you, we talked about uh russ and lee but you also had uh reggie gray was a freshman in 2002 he's still playing football now for i believe uh, washington uh in the arena league uh right now um eddie hartwell obviously was a had a fine career in the nfl uh mike cypress was a punter for the chargers forever after he got drafted, right. which is very un, un uh, very unlikely for a, a punter to get drafted, and he was selected by the the Chargers. Uh, Will Peterson uh, was also another one of your uh, drafted players. Am I missing anybody that made a made a pro run? Yep. How, how about I give you a clue? He was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, that was after my time, though. There was a linebacker, though, right? You're right, Jason Williams. Jason Williams. There you go. I think he was maybe a third round pick of the Cowboys, third or fourth round. I can't recall, but. But uh, those are some of the guys. And let's not forget this one. Here's one that was a free agent, and all he did was play about 10 years for the world champion New York Giants. Rich Soybert, yes. Richie Soybert, yeah. You know what? I, I, I'm sorry that I forgot that one because it drove me nuts for years that nobody in the media would pronounce his name right. They kept right. getting his last name wrong, Sobert or Siebert. Or, it's Soybert. It's Soybert. Just talk to the guy, please. It's, that's not his name. <laughs> that's right. But uh, – we're, we've been so blessed to, to be to have the chance to work with so many great young men. They were not just great football players; they're just great human beings. Yes, they were, and uh, like I like I said, I got to know many of them uh, during their time, including guys like Eddie and uh, and Mike, who I got to know very well uh, during because he was also a broadcasting guy uh, as well. So we yep. spent some time uh, together. Um, you mentioned the snow at Colgate. Um, the one thing, the other thing that made that uh, Western Eastern playoff game memorable in 2002 was the fact that I think anyone who was there would have prayed for it to snow because maybe it would have cut down on the horrible wind that we had to tolerate in that game. Do you remember how cold it was that day, Coach? I remember it was brutally cold, and I remember yeah. thinking one reason I think that we beat them badly. I think our team was more based on Midwestern football. Mm -hmm. The recruiting was more more Midwestern. I think my recollection is that Eastern Illinois had more players from Florida than we did, certainly. And uh, our guys, I think, were just more acclimated to the game. Um, it helped that we played at home. You know, we had a home field advantage. We also, I remember this vividly, I felt that, that the uh, Ohio Valley Conference 
had not not really approached the game the right way in playing Eastern. Nobody had really pressured Tony Romo, and no. we did. We came after him. Yeah, we came after him. He didn't handle it well. You know, the blame certainly doesn't all fall on Tony's shoulders, of course, because you got to have receivers that are able to get open, and you got to have pass protection that holds up. And you know, we just we just uh, took advantage of them early on, and and they fell behind, and they got discouraged. And on top of that, they were very, very cold. It's always warmer on the winning sideline. You know that. It absolutely is. It always is. Uh, Forty-eight to nine, I believe, was the final score uh, of that one. So. Yeah, the same day that we beat, we beat them by thirty-nine, and on that same date, Western Kentucky beat. Um, you mentioned earlier. I can't remember the I team. I think it was then. Murray State. They played. Yes, Murray State, the Racers. Uh, they beat them fifty-nine to twenty. So on the exact <laughs> same date in the playoffs, the two Gateway Football Conference teams won by thirty-nine points yeah. over the two OVC entrants. That gives you an idea of how strong that conference was. It was a very I mean, we. Call, I mean, I think the the phrase that we used all the time was as the the Big Ten Conference of, of one double A because that's how competitive the division was from top to bottom. Because it wasn't just Western Kentucky and Western Illinois. You also had Northern Iowa. Uh, in there, Youngstown State, which was a perennial national championship team and, and things like that. It was a very deep conference. It wasn't top-heavy with just the two Western teams, but it, it went down about four yeah, or five teams at least. You're exactly right. There were all kinds of tough games to be played, and that's still true today. You know, North Dakota State and South Dakota State have joined the league, uh, and and all those same teams you mentioned already were uh, are still a part of a, of a really, really competitive league. I know the only problem we all ran into as coaches, we had difficulty, those of us that were among the best teams, we had difficulty scheduling 1A opponents because the smart teams knew you better think twice about playing them. And um, we gave several teams uh, a scare. One of my disappointments was that I never got to come back and coach a game in Kinnick. Uh, But Iowa, I think I give Iowa credit, they were too smart to schedule Western Illinois because they knew. (laughs) uh, and, And for that matter, Northern Iowa did the same thing. Northern Iowa didn't beat Iowa, but came close several times. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I, my my one of my favorite memories about the 2002 season was going up to Northern Illinois and uh, beating them with that that last minute drive where where Russ took the team about an 80 yard drive down the field to score that uh, the winning touchdown on that trick play to, to Reggie Gray on the fake handoff. Yep. Yeah, it's funny you remember things like that because uh, after the game, Scott Schaefer's an old friend of mine. He was the defensive coordinator that day for Northern Illinois. And my recollection is, I believe it was third and goal at the five. Mm -hmm. And we ran a reverse. And after the game, Scott said, how in God's name did you have the guts to call a reverse on the five-yard line? And I said, well, I didn't think we could throw it in. And I didn't think we could run it in with any kind of conventional running play. And I, it just occurred to me, let's run a reverse with Reggie Gray. He was a true freshman at the time. Yeah. Uh, I believe that's I believe that's right. I'm yes, pretty sure of it. And uh, my thought was, even if they hit us in the head, if we lose three yards in the reverse, well, you can throw from the eight even a little better than you can the five. So right. when you think of it in those terms, Larry, third and goal at the five, reverse makes some sense, especially if you can't just run the ball in or you don't have uh, any special confidence in any particular pass play. A reverse does make some sense because you would expect that a team would run hard to the ball on the five yard line. And the other the the other big memory from two thousand and two was that the two most exciting games that I remember from that season, we lost them both. 
the first one being that Southern Illinois where we broke the clock scoring so many points going back and forth. That last second touchdown they scored to to win the game uh, there. And uh, then, of course, the the um, the Western Kentucky game, which unfortunately had that uh, the had the unfortunate ending, like one of the greatest football games I've probably ever witnessed became a headline on CNN, not because it was a great football game, but because of what took place after Mike missed that final kick. Yeah, that's true. Uh, very true. It's it's um, that that Southern Illinois game. You might remember this. You know, after the game, it was 54 to 52. I remember right. first off, I got a call from Coach Fry, and he said, Coach Patterson, I want to congratulate you. And I said, I said, what for, Coach? We just lost a, a football game. And he said, he said, you managed to do something, though, I've never never did in coaching. And I said, really, what was that? He said, you scored 52 points and lost. <laughs> and uh, I said, I said, thanks, Coach. I appreciate that. He, of course, he had a, we had a good laugh over that. Yeah. But here's what else I remember about that last drive. The last drive, the winning drive for Southern Illinois, and obviously neither team could stop the other one. Right. Um, after the game, I went back and I could measure the the time off the clock on every last play in that last drive because there was a clock stoppage on every last play. Hmm. And the reason that was significant, Larry, I was able to go to the conference commissioner and explain, okay, here's the plays that Southern ran on that last drive. We can measure how long, how long each of these plays takes because there's a, there's a stoppage of clock after every play. And I was able to document that the game should have ended a couple of plays earlier. And um, we had a clock operator that wasn't exactly rooting for the Viston team. Let's say that. <laughs> sure. And um, and uh, I said, all, I said, I don't expect any kind of public apology, uh, but I would like to have a letter stating that um, the game should have ended a couple of plays earlier. Right. Because we might need that letter to uh, put in front of that committee at the end of the year. Well, thankfully, I think we won out and didn't lose another game. So in the end, it didn't matter uh, in terms of making the playoffs. But it was still unfortunate because, of course, it it, uh, affected our chances of winning the conference. We lost to a really fine Saluki team. And and, um, that was a difficult game to... To uh, to suffer through, and then you mentioned the Western Kentucky playoff game. Yeah, uh, you probably remember how that whole thing started. I do. We had a young man named James James Rennick that was a senior. He just had finished his last football game of his college career, and he wasn't your typical senior because he was a an Air Force veteran with a a wife and two kids when he showed up at Western. So he was maybe oh I don't know twenty six years old or something yeah. when he finished his college career. Uh, he was agonizing over that field goal that barely missed at the end of the game. He was down on the ground on all fours uh, with tears in his eyes. And you can see it on the video. There was a Western Kentucky player that came out on field, and he had a cleanest white uniform. And he makes the mistake of getting into James Rennick's face yeah. and taunting him about the way the game came out. And that's how it all started. Yeah. Um, you know, their guy was talking trash to one of our guys who played his guts out that day. And, um, and you know, one thing led to another, and then the next thing you knew, helmets were flying. And, um, and of course, the NCAA, you might recall this, they actually suspended players, mm-hmm. not from the first game the next fall. They suspended uh, some players off both teams for the next playoff season. And we oh. actually went to Western, went to uh, Montana 
with a few guys having to miss the game. I can't recall how many, but we beat them anyway. Uh, and it was unfortunate that they didn't get to be part of that playoff experience the next fall. But, you know, I think the NCAA felt we have to punish players on both sides of the of the field because, you know, there were helmets thrown on both sides. Yeah, it was uh, – uh, I know my – Go ahead, Coach. I was just going to say, I know my daughter was worried for my safety because I was out on the field trying to stop it. Sure. And um, helmets were flying. And you might recall, of course, there was a sledgehammer that was – Yes. That flew also. That that was that was swung and it barely missed one of our players. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could have been tragic. Um, back in those days, the Hilltoppers took a sledgehammer to the bench, and the the mantra, of course, was "We're going to hammer the other team." Right. And that's why we had this sledgehammer on our bench. But some player foolishly took it on the field with him at the end of the game. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I mean, I was. You know, obviously heartbroken that the that this amazing team that I that I watched basically every single snap, um, you know that that team was was now done. The season was over, and even even in this amazing contest where it came literally down to to the wire, that that the, the just even the thought that that game could be forgotten and or overshadowed by what happened at the end of it was even more heartbreaking than losing the game itself. That's true. It was one of those games where every now and then you see a game where at the end of the game you say, you know, I hate that either, either team lost this game because both of them yeah. played their hearts out. And you could say that about both uh, both those teams on that particular day. Well, Coach, I think it's it's time we, we move, to, uh, move forward a little bit. Um, you, you, you finished up your uh, career at, at Western and, and you moved on to uh, the University of Buffalo, and, uh, which is where our paths crossed for the last time. Uh, back in in 2011, uh, myself and and my good friend Ryan Simmons, who I'm sure you remember, uh, were were spending the weekend in Indianapolis to see the Colts play because Ryan had season tickets, and it just so happened that weekend the University of Buffalo was going to be in Muncie, Indiana, playing Ball State, and uh, we gave yes. you a call to let you know that we were going to be in attendance, and you were good enough to uh, put us on the list so that we could join um, your wife in the uh, Buffalo cheering section there at uh, Ball State, and I, I remember the game being a lot of fun, but it didn't work out in our favor uh, that night as far as the University of Buffalo is concerned. And one thing that took place that night that I, didn't, that I was not aware of until several years later was that I got a chance to watch future Chicago Bear Khalil Mack play football that night. That's true, and I don't know. I'm trying to think of what year that was. Even then, I'm sure Khalil was a dominant player of course, all the Bear fans have a great appreciation for Khalil Mack, uh, but I had a great appreciation for him long before they did. I know when I first got to Buffalo, I asked one of the coaches. I said, "Who is this? Who is this guy? This is impressive what he can do." And and it was Khalil as a younger player. Um, amazingly enough, Buffalo was Khalil's only scholarship offer for football. Yeah. Um, he really there was a period of time in high school when he thought he was going to be a basketball player. Um, thank God he, he decided on football. Amen. And the thing, and um, it, it was just inspirational to see Khalil play. Khalil, if he were on the phone with you right now, he would say, I have to give special credit to my position coach because Coach Lou Tepper is one of the best defensive coaches that ever was. Uh, some of our Illinois fans remember Lou Tepper from his defensive coordinator days with the Illini, some of the best Illinois defenses ever. Uh, and then, of course, he was the head coach for the Illini for a period of time, too. Right. Uh, Lou's a great, great coach, 
Uh, he had a lot to do, I think, with Khalil's development. I'm sure Khalil would tell you that. Uh, but I am so proud of Khalil, and here's what's so neat about Khalil Mack. I watched him – well, let me back up. His senior year we played at Ohio State. Yes. Ohio State Ohio State had a great football team, of course, but I said after the game there will not be a single person wearing um, crimson and – what do they call it? Crimson and red? Is that what that is? I think it's scarlet and uh, red no, or something like that. Scarlet yeah. and red. Thank you. Yeah, scarlet and, scarlet and crimson. There you go. Uh, not a single, single Ohio State fan – would argue the fact that the best player on the field today was not wearing yeah, wearing their uniform. He was wearing a Buffalo uniform. His name was Khalil Mack. Yeah. It was that obvious, even against Ohio State. Um, he went on to play play so well for us that year in all the games. A great leader. Uh, no surprise to us that he was a good high draft pick. Uh, then he went on and, of course, did great things for the Raiders. Mm-hmm. Um, the Raiders foolishly traded him, but I'm so happy that they did because – I'm much more of a Bears fan than a Raiders fan anyway. <laughs> and here's the other the other comment I'll make about Khalil Mack, and I bet your your Bear fans will, will agree with me on this. Sure. Uh, Khalil Mack had great value to the Bears for how he could actually play the game. That's yeah. obvious because he's going to contribute sacks and he's going to play hard all the time and make plays. But here's the other – here's the intangible that he brings. Those other Bear starters, before Khalil Mack arrived, they thought they were playing hard. And then they saw Khalil Mack play. And then they realized, you know what? I think I could play a little harder. I think mm-hmm. I could play more like Khalil Mack. Yeah. And that's what the Bear defense did. And uh, with just a little bit of luck, uh, of course, you could have made a deep run into the playoffs last year. Uh, I say you. I, I think of you as being part of that Bears organization, Larry. And, <laughs> and, and, and uh, if we can – now I, now I sound like I'm part of the Bear organization. If we <laughs> – if the Bears can – can upgrade on offense a little bit, then then maybe this will be the year for the Bears to return to a Super Bowl. I certainly hope so. Oh. I do know that Khalil Mack will do everything he can to make it happen. Yeah, from your lips to God's ears, Coach, that would just be the most fantastic thing. I mean, I was excited about this team heading into the 2018 season, and that was even before we draft or tra- traded for, I should say, uh, Khalil Mack. We had this brand-new head coach, um, a younger guy who was going to bring in a, you know, a brand-new offensive system. We went out in free agency and signed all these new exciting offensive weapons for our quarterback, Mitch Trubisky, to throw the football to. There was a lot of potential there, and I could not have imagined in a 1,000 years that it would have resulted in the season that it was. But even then, I was saying at the, before the 2018 season started, 2019, that's the year that, I, that I'm really excited about because it will be year two year two under Managi's system, year two all these guys that barely know each other playing together in that system and all that kind of stuff. We had a full offseason for Khalil Mack, who had no offseason whatsoever last year. No OTAs, no spring spring training, training camp, nothing. Eight days from the day we signed him, he's playing Green Bay on on national uh, TV. And our number one pick, Roquan Smith, held out for the majority of preseason last year. So full OTAs, full training camp for him put that all together and mix it in a blender i can't wait to see what that team's capable of and you know here we are we're less than two months away from from seeing what that team uh can do and i'm literally counting the seconds uh for us to get there and see what the bears can do this year well i think you certainly have a lot to look forward to i just know that khalil will be a great leader for the bears uh in the locker room and on the field and he's going to do his part and and obviously, uh, it sounds like your coaching staff certainly has an idea of what they need to, 
where they need to upgrade and, and uh, how they can make things even better than what they already are. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I think that is that is uh, key to the success, you mentioned the kind of person that, that Khalil Mack is, and we talked earlier in our conversation about when you, you the, the, type, the, the type of kids that you recruited to play football for you. I very much feel like that's what Ryan Pace is doing with the Bears as well. Not only does he want ta- guys that can play the game, but that are as good off the field as they are on uh, the field as well. High character guys, Akeem Hicks, uh, Mitch Trubisky, uh, Khalil Mack, as, as you mentioned before, several guys on that team uh, fall under that category. And I, and I think it's, it's more of a, a, a building or a foundation for long-term success as opposed to a, a team that can win today and lose tomorrow kind of thing. Yeah. And for that matter, since we're talking about the Bears football, I'd like to take the Bear fans back to those glory days of the Mike Ditka teams. Sure. Because a couple of a couple of those key starters uh, for the Bears back then in those Super Bowl uh, in that Super Bowl year, and maybe there were more than one. I can't recall. I know for sure there was one Super Bowl victory. I apologize. I don't know Bear football that no, well. No, just just the I one, remember. Coach. Just the one. Just the one. Okay. Just the one. Just the one. Well, there were two guys that were instrumental in that season. There's a guy named Jay Hogenberg at center. And a guy named Mark Bortz Mark at Bortz. guard, and those are both both old Iowa players. I saw Bortzy last Friday at a birthday party for Coach Brazier. Coach Brazier is 90 years old now, wow. and there were no less than about 50 football players that turned out to support Coach Brazier on his 90th birthday celebration. It's the other amazing thing that I love about this game of football is the relationships that you built um, with people that somehow always, like all the best people that I've known in my life, I know through the game, whether it's it's you, my good friend Ryan Simmons, my friend from high school, Fritz, who has been my best friend since uh, high school. I mean, just down the line, all of the best people I know somehow or another are connected through the game. Yeah, all I can say is that, you know, it's such a it's such a total commitment to be able to be successful in any given season. Uh, so really, you, you do build um, – a special bond with your teammates and your coaches, you know, to win requires just a total commitment on everyone's part. And, um, you know, it's very emotional to to have a big win or to suffer a difficult loss. And um, those friendships last a lifetime. They do. Um, those players, they, every, every home game for Iowa football. Now uh, all the former players know where the Iowa football club is from a tailgating standpoint and I will admit, I'm going to get by that tailgate to catch up with some Iowa football players because every time I show up at the tailgater, there's somebody I haven't seen in 25 years wow. or maybe longer. Sure. And it's really meaningful to, to reconnect with those players. And and uh, invariably, the memories are really vivid on, on their part and my part. You know, I remember those days as well as they do. Maybe not quite as well because they're one generation younger than I am or maybe more than one generation but, um, you know, it's just – I'm just extremely blessed to have got to coach college football for 37 years, 425 games. I, I do not know how many of those games we won, Larry, but I can assure you we won a lot more than we lost. Right. All right, Coach. Well, before I let you go, I got a couple of questions uh, left for you. Uh, I reached out okay. to to the, the players that I'm uh, friends with on Facebook to see if they would have any questions for you. Strangely enough, I only got one, and it came from Travis okay. Washington. And the players want to know what you put in your hair. 
Because I, I guess they kind of feel like you had a, a Jimmy Johnson thing going on with the hair, like it was always perfect and, and combed to the side uh, the way that you did. They wanted to know if you put anything in your hair. Oh, God. I, you know, I, I wonder. I, I don't even know. You know, I have some kind of hairspray that uh, is for men. I know that. You know, but, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll wash my hair. One thing I can't afford to do, I can't afford to not wash my hair every day of the week because I'll have a terrible case of bedhead. Right. So I'll wash my hair and I'll comb it. And of course, I, um, from my military background, I don't go too long without a haircut. I don't let my hair get too long. Me neither. But even then, even then, to keep it in place, I gotta put some kind of spray on it. I don't even know what it's called. Uh, <laughs> but um, I guess it's working okay. I, they saw me wearing a lot of caps, you know, from a football standpoint. I always had a cap on at practice. I think uh-huh. most of the time I did at least. And. Um, um, and certainly on game day, I had some kind of cap on. I know that for sure. Um, maybe not always. I guess in the in the dome, I never wore a cap. I can't recall wearing a cap in the dome. But that's funny. Travis thinks I do something to my hair. I can assure you also, I don't color my hair. And if you saw me right now, Larry, that would be obvious because right. the other day I had to identify my hair color and ask my wife. I said, what do I put down? And she kind of smirked and said, well, it's kind of obvious. you got to put down gray. Right. Uh, so I used to say, Larry, I've got one gray hair for every drop pass, but we never <laughs> dropped that many, nearly that many passes. No, we didn't. Um, no, we didn't. So, but I'm, I'm blessed. I'm, I like to say I'm 68 years young. I'm not 68 years old. As some of your listeners know, but not many, probably mm-hmm. I had a bout with cancer 11 years ago. I'm fortunate yeah. to be alive today. Uh, the hospital staff at U of I hospitals and clinics, saved my life you know i should i had four stage cancer i wasn't supposed to recover from it but but i did thanks to the great care that i got at iowa um so i'm i'm just blessed to be alive it wasn't my turn wasn't my turn i get to live a while longer not yet not yet well my good friend uh ryan simmons did have a question for you and he wanted to know reggie roby or mike cypress i would vote for mike cypress and there's a story behind it if you have time absolutely Okay, uh, to this day, the NCAA record for punting in a season is Reggie Roby, 49.8. Mm-hmm. But here's the rest of that story. Mike Cypher's senior year, he averaged 48.02. But I remember asking our sports information guy, I said, do me a favor, go back and figure up Mike Cypher's average when we're on our side of the 50, you know, when we're backed up. Right. He came back and he said, Coach, you averaged 52.0. And I said, that's what I thought. And I explained to him, I said, the reason I wanted you to do that, Roby has the NCAA record, 49-8, but Roby never pooch punted. And we have such a good offense. Mike Cypher's only punted 53 times in 13 games his senior year. Yeah. Uh, So that's four punts a game. Well, if you eliminate Mike's pooch punts, he wouldn't have had enough punts to qualify anyway because I think you're required to have 3.6 or 3.8 punts per game. And Mike wouldn't have had that many because we have such a good offense, he only punted four times a game. So he still wouldn't have set a new record. Of course, it was one double A versus one A. Mm-hmm. But I would give a slight edge to Mike Cypress. I think Mike Cypress was a better punter. Uh, this says it all. How about let's go forward to Mike Cypress as a professional punter. Mm-hmm. There's a playoff playoff game. The Colts lose to the Chargers, yep. and no less than the Colts quarterback. I think we know who he is. Yeah. Mr. Manning, Mr. Yes, Manning, after the game, said, we lost today, 
because of Mike Cyphers. Now, what a great compliment to pay to an opposing punter. Uh, Mike Cyphers is the best punter, in my mind, the best punter in the history of the NFL and in the history of college football. And um, there was a really good punter back when Mike punted for the Chargers, punted for the Raiders. And he generally had a better average than Mike, but that's the rest of that story, too. The Raiders had such an anemic offense, he always had a long field to punt on. Right. And so uh, Cyphers had to had to punt sometimes from plus territory, you know, maybe less than 50 yards to the goal line. And, uh, of course, that's going to hurt your average, but Mike was really adept at that, too. Yeah. The pooch punting, as we call it, was another thing he did really well. So the punter from Oakland generally had a better average than Mike, but the dirty little secret is he also had a longer field to punt from. Yeah, because Mike was playing so, on teams with guys named Drew Brees and Phillip Rivers, who are, you know, you're right. are, uh, were awesome quarterbacks that didn't have trouble moving the chains uh, most of the yeah. time. So, yeah, that's probably going to happen. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Reggie Roby was a great punter, too. Uh, but honestly, I'd give a slight edge to Mike Cyphers. I always remember Reggie Roby as a young kid. Number one, my grandfather was a big fan of Reggie Roby for one reason or another. And um, the other one was that I always remembered that Reggie Roby kicked the ball flat-footed. Like he was so flexible that he could basically kick himself on his shoulder blade and with his, other, with his plant foot still on the ground. Like that's how flexible and powerful his legs were. He didn't have to leave the ground to do what he did. Uh, when he when he kicked you know, back said, in the day, I said this about Reggie, and there's no doubt in my mind this is true. Uh, you could you could be blindfolded and have ten college punters lined up, uh, and you could identify which one was Reggie Roby because the ball made a different sound coming off his foot than all those others. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, and my final question for you, Coach, was uh, when I when I Googled you uh, the other day to to do some research for the for the show tonight. Um, you were not the first Don Patterson that came up for me. Uh, were you aware that you shared the name Don Patterson with a famous jazz organist from the 60s and 70s? You know, I think I was vaguely aware of that. I don't know much about that person, but I I hope he enjoyed his music as much as I did college football. Yeah, he has uh, albums uh, with such titles as Ode to Don, and the return of Don Patterson. That was my favorite one. The return of Don Patterson was the album he put out in 1974. So, uh, yes. Wow, that's, that's interesting. Maybe I need to study up on, on this other Don Patterson a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he's, been, uh, he's no longer with us. He's been gone for quite a while. But he uh, apparently made his mark with that name because he's the first name that came up when I Googled Don Patterson the other day. That's funny. Thanks for sharing, Larry. <laughs> well, Coach, thank you uh, for coming on uh, to the show and and uh, and having this conversation uh, with me, taking us through the, the 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 legendary career that you've had with the legendary coaches that you shared it with, the legendary players you had the privilege of of, of coaching uh, and everything. It's been uh, it's been great talking to you tonight. Hey, it's uh, it's my pleasure to catch up with you, Larry. Uh, I have a lot of fond memories of you guys back in Western Illinois days. And it's great that we can reconnect from time to time. So please stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks so much for your time, Coach. You bet, Larry. Take care. Talks like that is why I love doing the podcast, why I love doing the show 
you know, the, the networking aspects and reaching out to people and getting to know them, being able to have people like Kyle Brandt and Adam uh, Adam Rank on the show. I spoke to New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman uh, last fall about his USFL book. That was an amazing experience as well. This is probably one of the most favorite interviews I, I've ever done, and I've had some amazing guests on the show, even during our opponent preview series, the Ross Jackson for the Saints, Brad Motter for the for the Rams, and you know, obviously guys like Lauren Cox and Evan Western uh, that we have on the show to talk about the Packers and the Bears and things like that. But this one ranks really, really high up there. I had a really great time uh, talking coach. We got a lot of really fun uh, stuff out of him. So, that, you know, Merton Hanks being the guy that he brought to Iowa, Tim Brown being the prospect that slipped through his fingers, a Hall of Fame wide receiver, a Heisman, a Heisman Trophy winner uh, at Notre Dame, you know, and, and it just amazing. The, 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 the people that he's come across and, and cross paths with in his life. I mean, that, that 83 coaching staff that he was talking about with, with you know, Bob Stoops was a grad assistant. Uh, on that team you know Hayden Fry being the head coach Barry Alvarez Kirk Ferentz it, it just an amazing collection uh, of guys who went off and made their own name uh, in college football I mean Barry Alvarez synonymous with the University of Wisconsin you almost forget that he had to start somewhere and he started at Iowa with uh, with Hayden Fry so it's uh, uh, amazing and coach coach uh, coach P had a front seat a front row seat uh, uh, to all of that uh, and and the history and stuff that that he that he was there for uh, and everything. So, I mean, it's just uh, an amazing uh, life and time that he's had. And uh, uh, God bless him. He'll be around for a lot longer so he can come and tell us more stories and, uh, you know, entertain us uh, again uh, in the future. So I just want to thank Coach for uh, coming on the show. Look forward to having him back on again uh, sometime real soon. So um, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, the episodes we got coming up, we got Emery Moorhead next week going to be talking to us about training camp the experiences he went through what the players go through now how that differs we'll talk to him about the 100 year celebration that he went to back in june um and, and everything else that we can squeeze into the the time uh that we'll have with emory so come back for that on uh, let's say let's say wednesday put it right in the middle of the week we're, we're changing the time schedule here because i'm releasing this coach patterson episode a few days early i said it was going to come next week I enjoyed it so much I had to put it out early, so here it is. So we, we're shifting the timetable. Emory Moorhead is going to be uh, Wednesday uh, of next week. We'll have Carolina Teague the week after that. And then the finale of our little interview series, we got a fifth and final guest, Brett Coleman. Brett Coleman, uh, with he, you might remember him from my OGs out there. Had him on the show to, uh, to preview the, the Bears' week one matchup with the Titans back in 2016. Uh, when he was uh, working for the Texans site uh, for SB Nation, uh, came on and talked to about the Texans uh, with us. In the time since then, uh, Brett's made quite a name for himself on YouTube, uh, making uh, uh, videos uh, on YouTube about various uh, football team players and making picks and fantasy and stuff like that. And over the last six to eight months or so, he's turned out quite a few videos on the Bears. He did the one... Uh, about Eddie Jackson, where he made a case that Eddie Jackson should be the defensive player of the year. He did a video last spring 
before the 2018 NFL draft about why Roquan Smith was a beast and someone should take him early in the draft and he should not fall uh, kind of thing. He, he did a video, I think, towards the end of the season last year that basically chronicled how it was the Bears were able to shut down Jared Goff and that explosive Rams offense and that big Sunday night win that the Bears had uh, against the Rams last year. And then the thing that 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 prompted me to ask him to be on the show was the video that he and I that uh, that that uh, myself and Adam Rank uh, were talking about when he was on the show about how he broke down Trubisky and how kind of schizophrenic uh, Mitch Trubisky was last year, where he'd be laser focused and the most accurate quarterback you've ever seen, and then miss wide open guys down the center of the field for touchdowns. You know, put left a lot of points. Uh, on the field uh, last year and uh, you know whether or not uh, Mitch Trubisky can make that can close the gap in 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 the two extremes that he was last year we'll have Brett on uh, to talk about that talk about all those videos talk about the Roquan video the Bears beating the Rams video and obviously the Trubisky uh, video to to kind of break it all down uh, for us so I was real happy to be able to get him to come on the show so we'll have that episode come out as well and that'll be the last one before we move on to the preseason reviewing the bears and the panthers to get started and then rolling downhill until we finally get to thursday night on september 5th bears packers week one to kick off the 100th season of chicago bear football 100 years of nfl football so it's it's getting so close you can almost taste it almost it's almost you can smell it can't taste it yet you can smell it you can it it's it's close you smell smell that it's it's close it's so close so anyway that is going to do it guys uh for this episode of the bear sock underground like i said come back next wednesday wednesday is when the emory moorhead episode uh will drop we'll, we'll drop it right in between the rookies reporting and the veterans uh reporting we'll drop it right there in the middle of the week the week after that we'll have carolina teague on uh to discuss various topics with the bears and then uh how a Chicago girl ended up in San Antonio and, and things like that and everything in between and then polish it off with Brett Coleman breaking down those uh, those awesome YouTube videos uh, that he's been producing as of late. So come on back next week. We're, we're getting closer and I'm staying busy until uh, come hell or high water. I'm staying busy until it's time for football to get played. So come on back next week for Emory Moorhead and we'll keep it going from there. Until then, my name is Larry D and this has been Bears Talk Underground. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.